0: Uh, One of the things that at least I preach and teach all the time is that uh, we believe as Episcopalians in God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love. And saying that all the time uh, also raises the question that if people do, at least my pastoral experience has been that they wish in some way to respond to this divine initiative, that there is a desire to sort of grow in grace and the knowledge of this to see if in fact it's true Uh, most people aren't content fortunately to just float down a stream of grace although on a daily basis for me at least it's tempting and uh, but somehow we need to respond to the divine initiative i mention this because the two readings i'm going to preach on the reading from colossians paul's letter to the colossians and from the gospel have um something to do with what we might call Christian maturity. How do we understand Christian maturity? And maybe more to the point, what it means to be a mature human being and uh, why that's an important thing to strive for, it seems to me. And these readings have something to do, both Paul speaking about this in an affirmative sense, about maturity, the concluding line, uh, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's my third favorite quotation from the New Testament. You know the first two, Je- looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us and that the goal of ministry The goal of our work when we seek to commend our greatest place of safety and assurance is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The best sermon I ever heard preached when I was in England as a young priest in the late 70s was at All Saints Church Margaret Street in London, which is a great Anglo-Catholic shrine. Sir Lawrence Olivier was an acolyte there as a boy. It's right around the street from All Souls Langham Place, which is so low you have to look up to see bottom. (laughs) So you had the polar opposites of the Anglican communion uh, around the corner, one from another. And the priest who preached the sermon preached on that we may be made mature in Christ. I never forgot it. So that's why I felt compelled to preach about this today. You've heard me speak in the last few weeks because I spent a lot of time on Galatians, talking about how uh, in biblical scholarship, I made a pact to myself when I got out of seminary. So those of you who get tired of this just need to know that I'm working something off. And (laughs) what it is, is that I made a, 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 a pact to myself that I was not gonna get up here and talk to you about the Bible uh, in a way that um, was not honest, particularly in terms of what it was that I learned in school, which is open to comment for sure, but at least you are entitled to know this information. And I never liked it when I would go to visit a church of one of my classmates in later years and hear them get up and preach a sermon and treat Adam and Eve like two historical people. It was an absolute outrage to listen to that. So I determined that I was not going to do that in my ministry. So I've told you about the fact that in biblical scholarship, the reigning view amongst biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, is that of the 13 letters that are attributed to St. Paul in the New Testament, seven are undoubtedly Paul-eyed. OK, at least that's the reigning hypothesis. Colossians is one of them that's at least right on the razor's edge. Uh, it's probably more controversial than any of the ones that First 1 and Second Timothy, we know Paul didn't write and so on. But uh, Colossians is somewhat controversial. But a number of people don't think Paul wrote it. And I need to tell you, who cares? <laughs> But I need to say something about it because it has something to do about with Christian maturity and maybe something to do with Paul's own processes of Christian maturity and how he came to be mature in Christ and what he understood. So some of the criterion criteria that are used to determine whether a letter is Pauline is to see whether or not in the letter uh, the writer is speaking about issues and focusing on things that in the undoubted letters never come up or are not issues uh, for for the writer of Ephesians or Colossians or something like this. I've also mentioned to you that there are stylistic questions in the Greek text where when you uh, dictate to a secretary There are figures of speech and ways of speaking that Paul has in the undoubted letters that do not appear either as frequently or at all in the other letters. For example, Paul uh, often begins sentences with the Greek word un, which means you know, you know, da-da, you know, da-da. Well, in Ephesians it doesn't appear at all, or in Colossians, or 1st and 2nd Timothy, so maybe he had a different secretary or he had a scribe clean it up. I don't know. <laughs> the other thing is that uh, in, it, here's what I think about why you could say, who cares? This could represent what we read today, Paul speaking about the work of Christ, Paul speaking about coming to an understanding of moving toward Christian maturity as something that has been now the result of his pastoral experience. In the undoubted letters, he really doesn't care whether you and I are mature in Christ because Jesus is going to come any minute. So it really doesn't matter. But in these letters, we begin to see some idea of the issue of Christian maturity growing in the process of how do we respond to God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love. So it may be important to say these these reflect Paul's own processes of spiritual development. What you hear today in Colossians is a, a, in the beginning is fragments of an early hymn in the, in the liturgy of the church about who Jesus is. And you hear uh, Paul describing uh, in Hellenistic Greek terms Christ's pre-existence in all time and eternity, and that he is essential for God's saving activity. And all this has something to do with the fact that we're here as the people of God, as church, and so the processes of sanctification and maturity must be important. And so he concludes in this reading today that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We, together, as we hold each other up, we who commend our greatest place of safety and assurance that this is what it is that we're about. My view of maturity can be either described in strictly religious spiritual terms, in terms of the classic vocabulary of the Christian spiritual life, or you can think about maturity in terms of what it means to become a whole human being. This is not the only place where maturity is used, although in other parts of the New Testament, the word for mature is translated as perfect. So perfect for me is tough. Mature maybe is doable. And so this is why I like this particular passage a lot. Maturity might, the starting point for maturi- maturity as a human being might be taking responsibility for your own being and destiny. What is, a, what is a mature person? A mature person is someone who takes responsibility for their own being and destiny. That's easy to say, isn't it? But I would guess mo- people in the therapeutic culture understand what that means. Certainly, therapists seek to, in uh, having people become more emotionally mature, uh, wish them to be able to take responsibility for their own being and destiny. That it's not something outside themselves that is going to produce this. That they need to begin to develop the internal self-regulation to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of them on a daily basis. So when you think about mature in Christ, think about the human aspect of this. Because in Jesus we see, in his words and in his works, words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. But we also see somebody who has achieved the highest of their human potential. And that that was what was compelling to those who followed him. So you can't have one without the other. So the reading from Colossians sets us up about maturity in Christ, taking responsibility for our own being and destiny. In the Gospel, this week on the House of Deputies loop, or whatever they call it, list serve, there's been an enormous number of people pontificating and exegeting the story of Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary. And uh, they've been very interesting posts, some of them, some of them kind of exasperating as far as I'm concerned. But there it is. So I'm going to explain to you what I have always believed this passage to be about and uh, quote some people to uh, give me support for my view about all of that. You know the story, Mary... Uh, and Jesus comes at to the end of the house of Mary and Martha, and he sits down. And apparently he pulls the stuff. "Is there coffee?" <laughs> you know. So that gave rise on the House of Deputies list to say, "Well, Jesus is a misogynist o- oaf <laughs> because he didn't get up and make his own, you know, or help Martha." And Mary sits at the table, and uh, or at the the feet of Jesus, and listens to him talk. And Martha's running around. Martha, to me, is central casting. Send me the classic female overfunctioner in the family, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, pushing carts around. You know, getting everybody. You know, driving you nuts. (laughs) N-U-T-S. And then saying they get no respect. Right? All I'm trying to do... I don't know what kind of a family you grew up in, but sometimes I'll tell you, this got old fast. Really fast. So, she's there, and Martha is upset. I read in a commentary about all this, uh, it's an English translation of an Italian poem... Don't ask about this gospel and and a sentence that the poem has in it. Listen, if I sat around on my salvation the way Mary does, who'd keep this house together? (laughs) Right? So Martha is upset. And she says to Jesus, you know, you should remonstrate with her because I'm not getting any help. She wouldn't have in the ancient Near East, I guess, the temerity to tell him why doesn't he get up and do any of this, right? So anyway, Jesus um, says to Martha... By the way, in the vocabulary of the ancient Near East in the Greek language, in the Greek that is used in this passage and the way Jesus speaks, he has done this elsewhere. He says, Martha, Martha, there is a reason why he does this. It's a way of speaking uh, to someone to say, oh, you know, listen. And uh, he tells uh, her that... uh, Mary has chosen the better part, which I imagine throws a little coal oil on the fire, but (laughs) there it is. This is a classic gospel about the tension between the active and the contemplative life. That's what this is about. It's about how we understand the balance between the life of prayer or the spiritual life, however you wish to interpret this, and the active life where we not only are commending our greatest place of safety and assurance, but every Christian person serious about their baptism is laboring to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. That we understand that to be an absolute demand of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the balance And how do we strike it? Father Thomas Keating speaks about this gospel in one of his books. I think it's Open Heart, Open Mind, the Contemplative Dimension of the Gospel. I talk about him all the time. Here's what his big goal has been. He's a Trappist monk. These people are not exactly out there, are they? Right? On one level. But it became clear to him once he understood something about the ancient monastic tradition... And now that I'm reading Dermot McCullough, we realize that some of these monastic communities actually assisted in the process, not only of helping Christianity survive, preserving the ancient texts, but being the locations and the centers to reach into the world for the purposes of bringing about social justice. So what Father Keating is talking about here is that the contemplative life was initially supposed to be lived not by religious specialists like him, but in the world. So that each one of us has the active dimension and the contemplative dimension. They are not one or the other, they're both and. So when he speaks about this parable, that's what he's getting at. Jesus's statement is a call Father Keating says, to Mary and Martha, not just to Martha. Martha's activity was good. Mary's was better, but neither was good enough. Both needed to move into the union and harmony of the two, which is the contemplative dimension of the gospel. This parable encourages us to seek the integration of action and prayer. This time of contemplative prayer is the place of encounter between the creative vision of union with Christ and its incarnation in daily life. Without this daily confrontation, the contemplative vision can stagnate into a privatized game of perfectionism or succumb to the subtle poison of seeking one's own satisfaction in prayer. On the other hand, without the contemplative vision, Daily renewed and contemplative prayer, action can become self-centered and forgetful of God. The contemplative dimension guarantees the union of Martha and Mary. And so what Father Keating means here, I think, is he has a specific meaning in terms of learning how to do centering prayer. It's a technique. But for you and I to begin this process, we have to sort of think in rather... Mundane terms about what this contemplative dimension of our daily living involves. So, you remember last week and uh, before I've said uh, some studies on uh, emotional health and in human beings have suggested that each one of us needs to spend at least 20 minutes a day doing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing you know i mean it may not literally maybe just sitting uh, wool gathering but there is a contemplative aspect to this kind of reflective process that is important listening for the still small voice that you know is not your own being able to do a piece of straight thinking about something archbishop anthony bloom a russian orthodox uh, bishop many years ago wrote a book he was in exile in england And he wrote a book called Living Prayer, and he said, Prayer is a piece of straight thinking about God. And I don't know about you, but I need to spend at least 20 minutes doing some straight thinking about whatever. Because I'm absolutely prone to making serious errors of thinking. And I think there's a lot that goes on in this world where people's thinking processes are seriously and deeply flawed. So maybe if you don't always think about this in terms of the religious aspect, you know, sitting and picking a a, a name, doing whatever the centering prayer is, I'll be saying more about that in the not too distant future. But to think about what Father Keating is speaking about here, the contemplative moment, we need to spend some time thinking about what it is that we're doing. Because a lot of us get lost in the sheer velocity. We live, you know, this is the great thing. My grandfather thought that we were marching from strength to strength in this culture, being able to manufacture things that would make it easier to live, labor-saving devices. He believed that we were technologically gonna get it all figured out and it would just absolutely go smoothly. We all believed this in the 1950s. I used to watch the Disney Hour on TV where they had a little sh- a show where a guy took a piece of atomic energy like a little pea in tweezers and dropped it into something in your car engine that looked like a carburetor and said, this car will run now for you. One of the most poisonous substances in the whole of creation. <laughs> we were going to now drop into the carburetor, right, or whatever the thing was, and believed it was going to absolutely work, you know? The point is, is not to throw water on that entrepreneurial zeal. It is merely to say that sometimes we need to have a little straight thinking, a contemplative moment about what it is that we ought to be doing. And as that becomes part of the habit, you know the Latin word habitus means a dwelling place. So the contemplative dimension has something about having uh, a, a dwelling place. What are the areas that we might contemplate more about in our spiritual development? Well, you've heard me say it many times, Keating's view is, is that the whole of our, our emotional, spiritual, and mental life is bound up with dealing with three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And those three things are all necessary for our survival. They're all necessary for coming to some form of emotional maturity. They're all necessary to get keep in balance in, or, in order for us to function at the highest level. And most of the time, when we're out of sorts, it's because one of these areas is out of whack. And so the contemplative moment provides the opportunity to think about those three energy centers. He calls them the irrational programs for happiness, right? Some people uh, in the House of Deputies list didn't like the collect that was written today. It was too 16th century, I guess. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things for which our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. Well, when you believe you live in the 21st century and you are the most progressive, knowing, uh, able individuals in all fronts, how could you possibly believe that? and yet on a daily basis in this culture, we see that replayed right before our eyes, don't we? So maybe Thomas Cranmer wasn't completely nuts. (laughs) There may be something going on, you know? So I guess this week, think about um, presenting yourself mature in Christ and what that might mean for you, whatever the starting point is think about how you have been in some cases. I know each one of you, whether you think so or not, have been an instrument for somebody else's coming to maturity, even in some small way. Not in an interfering, enabling sense, but in a way in which you have become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. Think about that. Think about anybody who has influenced you in a positive direction because they've done that in, in your direction. And think about the balance between the active and the contemplative. See if this week, uh, for one or two days, you can um, spend 20 minutes doing absolutely nothing. Amen.